0: If you would, open your Bibles with me this evening to Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. O Lord, gracious God and Father, I ask humbly the assistance of your spirit this evening to proclaim to your beloved people the truth of your abiding word, the message of peace purchased on the cross, given freely in grace to all those who would believe. May the grace and peace of the gospel be sown in the hearts of those in hearing this evening, and may your spirit enliven our hearts as we draw now near to you through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The last week, Brothers and sisters, we covered the text of the Epistle of Galatians up to chapter 3. And doctrinally speaking, we focused on the doctrine of justification by free grace, apprehended by faith in Christ alone. Now, this week, we move on with Paul to chapter 4 to his discussion of another related doctrine at the heart of the gospel, that of adoption. Now, doctrine is not a very interesting word. Frankly, it strikes a very boring note to many. But if you think of God's revelation to us, the gift of his word given to us through men as moved by the Spirit, and if you try and see these in the eye of faith, glorious truths about our great God, these doctrines, they begin to become more like jewels or precious stones fixed in fine settings. You can imagine then that Christ. Our stone, our rock, a beautiful diamond, and these doctrines are the cuts, if you will, on the stone, showing forth from him in his word to us in the gospel some ray of his beauty, some brilliant light of the glory of the Lord. Now, I don't mean to be boring with these, these doctrines, the confessions, and I hope that this is something that will eventually rub off and maybe come to punctuate my ministry among you, is a joy in the rich scriptural heritage we have expounded for us by our many forebears in the writings and documents and the confessions of the faith. Among these many forebears is theologian J.I. Packer and in his book, writing on tonight's subject in his book, Knowing God, he gives one of the better treatments out there, in my humble opinion on the doctrine of adoption, and this is in chapter 19, Sons of God and here he asks what is a Christian? Now this question, he says, can be answered in many ways. But the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as his father. So tonight I want to look at this, our identity with as God's children, with God as our father. We'll look at this in terms of identity and challenges and then in terms of privileges that come along with that identity. So... I think a brief recap is in order. We discussed at length last Sunday that only those in Christ are the sons and daughters of God. The sonship is a status, but it's not universal. It's not by natural birth, not by carnal lineage, but it is a supernatural gift apprehended by faith in Christ. Now, this evening with Paul in the text of chapter 4 of Galatians, we'll look at some of the contours of that sonship. In this doctrine of adoption, no. in adoption we have something really of a, of a sister doctrine, so to speak, to justification. Now, justification speaks of the relationship between man and God in Scripture, using terms such as law and justice and pardon and reconciliation, other legal phrases, the doctrine of adoption takes up a less transactional and much more relational tone. The doctrine of adoption, set forth in the Confession. Focuses on words like covenantal, familial, adoption, sonship, heir, begotten, in terms of that nature. This divine sonship of believers is dressed by our forebears in the Catechism. Question 34 asks, What is adoption? And adoption is an act, they say, of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number. And have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. And the divines, they offered up the following scriptural proofs. And I want to just run through these briefly. 1 John 3.1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. And the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. In Romans 8, 16, 17 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. promised we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, so, in adoption... Essentially, the stranger is taken into relationship as an heir. As Believers, we are lifted up out of our state of sin and misery. We are taken as Moses from the waters in his ark of bulrushes, given a new name, that of a prince in the house of a king, a new nature, and a new heart, or a princess, perhaps. With a new name, by the Spirit, we are lifted up, and in Christ we are ennobled with a new name. We bear the name of the one who has purchased our redemption and of his father who adopts us. You bear the family seal and its authority is invoked by right of your very presence wherever you go, for better or worse. This calls a calling on your life to God's purposes according to his will. You are not your own, but you are purchased with a price by the spirit he gives us a new nature he forms stars from the dust he forms us of clay he seats us in the heavens in excellence and in liberty and in all dignity in Christ in Christ we are new creations it's said that the new man I want to be clear with this term new creation we are not transformed or transubstantiated converted into some other substance and we are not A transmutation where we are a species of one kind that becomes another. We are not a metaphysical reconstruction where we get new mental equipment. We're none of those. We are evangelical, gospel-believing converts in Christ. We are an old man with new reigning moral dispositions. The outward man is given a new inward moral life. A natural man... The renovated spiritual heart. Now, this new heart. Lastly, you are heirs of a promise. And you are daughters, sons of the Most High. And given a heart that changes your seat of affections toward God, changes the nature of your relationship. And in this relationship, you are. God's own adopted jewels and treasures. Now, in understanding our identity as children of God, I often I look to this quote by J.I. Packer. I look to this chapter in this book, but this quote specifically. In adoption, Packer says, the traitor is forgiven. He is brought in for supper and given the family name. And to be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. These words, they encapsulate the significance of understanding our identity as children of God. As Christians, we are sons, and if sons, then heirs, Paul says. To have any portion of God is to possess the whole of him. He is undivided, simple. There's no divin- There are no divisions in his divine nature. Redemption in every case is a trying work. All of God is given every time, all in grace, by the Spirit in biblical background for adoption. Now, as far as I'm aware, Hebrew possesses no technical term for adoption. Uh, It makes no appearance either in the laws of the Old Testament. The nearest thing, perhaps, is the concept of the the Goel, the kinsman-redeemer, who uh, would would be the nearest living relative to take over the family, uh, the responsibilities, if, if something were to happen. So he takes over this redeemer, the responsibilities of the deceased. Uh, and in these in these cases, in today's lesson, I think this is related that it's the family in its entirety that is adopted. Abraham's nephew Lot is another example of adoption in Scripture. Uh, Elazar of Damascus, also Abraham's heir, possible ins- instance there. So even early in Genesis, we have some examples of these gracious familial relationships, even. If we don't have a precise technical term for it, but in the development of society in Canaan, uh, a really a very clear preference for adoption in the family emerges, and this is because Canaan was a savage place; it was a savage age. Um, but this is this is still the same today. Family still, in many ways, today it's the lifeline. Most important ways. It's, it's family. It's, it's the vessel through which our values and our bonds and our boundaries and our other arrangements are all transmitted across generations. It's, it's within the embrace of family that we cultivate and we nurture our relationships. And we foster trust. And we exemplify godly principles. It's through the family dynamics that we have the privilege of modeling healthy relations, faithfully reflecting and living out God's word for, to us in the first and second tables of the law, in our our relations with God and with one another. So adoption is used in today's text by Paul, and has its background, not just Roman law, but a rich lineage of Jewish custom. It confers the idea of family and the benefits of the family on the adoptee. So in the writings of Paul, adoption is... A relationship conferred by God's act of free grace redeems those under the law, and its intention is a result to result in a change of status, planned from eternity, mediated by Jesus Christ, from slavery and bondage and sin to sonship and freedom in Christ. Now, in the nation of Israel in the Old Testament was regarded as God's Son, and it was this divine choice of Israel that lay behind Paul's statement that sonship belonged to the Israelites. And he says this in Romans 9. And so it is that just as waters bring desert roses to bloom, God chooses Israel as a rivulet, so to speak, through whom the waters of the nations were diverted and through whom the Messiah would come. In Christ, he mediated to the nations in this way in the message of the gospel through this succession of gracious, covenantal relationship so it is presented primarily then in the New Testament as a relationship of grace it's a relationship of grace in John's teaching about becoming a son, it's a relationship of grace in the prodigal's acceptance into full family rights it's a relationship of grace in Jesus' often repeated title of God as father and so as Christians in adoption we are heirs of these same graces the sons of God, possess all family rights, including access to the Father and sharing with Christ the divine inheritance. But this adoption is partial for now in its fulfillment. The current state of affairs is temporary. However complete in status this adoption may be, it has yet to finally be made fully manifest in the deliverance of the creation from bondage. We still sojourn in a fallen world, brothers and sisters, while the gospel works as leaven. Unseen, but surely, all the while, ushering in the coming kingdom. So, in today's text, verses one to two, Paul explains this temporary state of the heir. He says, "I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, he's no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father." The heir, as a child, is no different. Paul says, "From a slave, it's temporary." as with all children, they are entrusted with limited authority. And this is due to limited ability, limited capacity. Trust of others is earned, little ones. In every case, through the consistent demonstration of your fitness of character. Now this, seen by others, is your capacity to bear the load of trust. For God has, in like manner, in his wisdom, subjected us to guardians and managers. Under these guardians and managers until the appointed time. Now, the purpose of these, Paul says, is in preparing the heir in their charge for their future responsibilities. When a child was adopted in these days, he was placed under the authority of his new father, he assuming not only the family name, but also privileges and responsibilities. And until he reached maturity, he was subject to these guardians, managers. And they were entrusted with the task of educating and training him, preparing him for his future role, ensuring that he would be fully equipped to handle the weight and dignity of his inheritance. Applying this, then, to our own spiritual adoption, we can recognize something here, that our present state as believers is one of temporary preparation. Though destined for glory and sure to inherit the riches of God's kingdom, we are currently in a state of growth and maturation. This period of waiting is not a time of idleness, though. It's not a time of insignificance, but it's a season of unique preparation orchestrated by our Heavenly Father. God, in his infinite wisdom, he molds and he shapes us and he equips us for the calling that he has placed on each of our lives. Calls for patience in God's timing. I want to encourage each of you to trust in God's perfect timing for His providence, for fulfillment of His promises in your life. In this season, this earthly season of waiting, this exhortation to patience is paramount. We are called to trust in God's perfect timing. Perfect sometimes means precise, down to the second. Don't rush the Lord. There's a famous line in Tolkien's *Lord of the Rings*, the second time, interestingly, that *The Lord of the Rings* was referenced today. Um, here, but he says, "A wizard is never late; he arrives precisely when he intends to." Gandalf says, "It's much the same with God. We don't trust in God's timing. We, we commit the sin of Saul, First Samuel thirteen. We commit the sin of Saul but we don't trust the Lord." Saul even trusted the prophet Samuel would come to make the offering before the battle. So Saul in his place presumptively makes the offering before the Lord. And the Lord condemns this through the prophet Samuel. He removes Saul. He removes from Saul the mantle of the kingdom. Samuel was much less friendly than Gandalf about this whole incident. The point is: don't rush the Lord. Don't presume. You can trust that whatever it is he's given you. Whatever it is that is happening, that's what you need, and it comes from his hand. So it's during this time of preparation that our character is refined, our faith is strengthened, and our hearts are better aligned with the will of God. We have to resist the temptation to rush ahead of God's plan. to become disillusioned by the delay of his promises, the seeming delay of his promises. Instead, we have to anchor ourselves in the assurance that God is faithfully working in us preparing us to fulfill our specific God-ordained destinies as heirs of his grace. Paul calls us to see by faith our current circumstances are part of our preparation for the future, unique preparation for God's calling. The situations we are in now, they prepare us for this, for what's coming down the road. Just as the heir, an ancient adoption, is carefully tutored, guided, guardians and managers, God orchestrates our experiences, both joyous, challenging, the bright and the dark providences alike to equip us for what he has ordained for us. Now, for Christians, brothers and sisters, these ups and downs are not always an indication of God's favor or disfavor, but they are always indicators of your sonship, of your royal heritage in the Lord. Each season of life, forward and back with its joys and sorrows, its losses, its mournings, its doubts, its triumphs, its trials. All of this contributes in our Father's sovereign design to our growth and development. Looking forward, therefore, we follow his word to us, and we are sustained thereby as a people. And looking back on our lives, we can discern the secret will of God revealed in the outworking of His constant and unfailing providence. All along, shaping us by his word and spirit, and the things that happen in our lives into vessels specifically fit for his purposes. God even gives us an illustration of this in creation's own different seasons of fruit-bearing. Our lives, we go through seasons in a similar way. We just as fruit trees they go through these cycles of darmancy, of blossoming, and of bearing fruit, so too our lives reflect something like seasons, each stage, whether it's a time of maybe quiet growth or maybe an outpouring of productivity or a time of rest and renewal. renewal, It each serves purposes in our pilgrimage here. So, In this, let us embrace, then, the temporary nature of our present state, knowing that we are, as the preacher said, the merest of breaths. Here for a moment, we are sojourners and pilgrims on the way to glory. So let us each trust, therefore, in God's sovereign plan and eagerly anticipate the appointed time when we fully step into our inheritance as heirs in the full stature of Christ, heirs of God's grace. Now, verses 3 to 4, Paul moves on and he talks about enslavement to elementary principles. In these verses, Paul talks about a spiritual bondage that exists prior to our adoption as children. Adoption, on one hand, is the image of a tutor and a teacher, but on the other, it's also of the Lord purchasing a slave's freedom. In Galatians 4, verses 3-4, to Paul says, In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. The world imposes its values and its expectations on us, and in a way, this does lead to an enslavement, in a sense, to worldly principles. Even today, we find ourselves confronted with this reality, the pressures of the world, driven by the influence of societal norms, cultural expectations. These exert profound impacts on our lives, and pressures they mold us, they seek to shape us, to conform us to the pattern of this world. I mean, even today, these precious, they would would have us celebrate an endless procession, one sin after another, in month-long festivals at a time. However, as heirs of God's grace, we are called to a different standard. We are called to stand apart, to resist the conformity and the homogeneity that the world would so desperately impose upon us. As believers, we face challenges in a culture that promotes values contrary to God's word cultural pressure to compromise our faith, however, is not a new phenomenon. It's existed throughout history, and it continues to manifest itself in various forms. This world entices us with promises of temporal pleasure, of popularity, of acceptance, but these are allurements, and they they come at the expense of your soul. The world seduces us with the notion that we can have both God and the world, that we can straddle a line between righteousness and compromise. Yet, as Jesus himself warned, no man can serve two masters. We cannot serve both God and the world. We must be aware of the subtle influences of the culture and how it seeks to compromise our faith. We have to remain faithful to God's truth. We have to cling to the unchanging word of God and draw strength from his wisdom. Navigating these challenges, Find the words of Paul in Romans twelve two. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Our minds must be renewed by the truth of God's word in our hearts, by the Spirit working in us. They must be aligned with God's will. to stay faithful to his truth amidst these social challenges. We stand firm in faith, even when it goes against popular opinion, when it goes against cultural norms. The world may scoff at our commitment to Christ and his righteousness. It may mock our adherence to moral absolutes, to the words in an ancient book. We must remember that our allegiance is not to the world, but to our heavenly Father. Now, in this, we need to be wise as serpents, navigating these, pitfalls wisely, but also innocent as doves, looking to Jesus all along the way at every step. So, let's take comfort in that. Let's also take comfort in the knowledge that we are not alone in this. I know my wife profits greatly from seeking out others for the faith where she works. Persecution, it's like, it's like a late frost. As it strengthens the harvest, in a sense. The Holy Spirit also. He empowers us to overcome the allurements of the world. And also gathering with a broader community of believers. So we have our brothers and sisters that we know. We have the church and we have the Holy Spirit with us. We are not alone in this, in our pilgrimage here. And finally, let's move to verses 5 to 7. Paul talks about adoption as sons and heirs. So. In the preceding sections, we've looked at the temporary state of the air and the dangers conforming to worldly principles. But now I want to come to the pinnacle of Paul's argument. The great truth of our adoption as sons and heirs through Christ. Galatians 4, 5-7, to Paul continues. To redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Christ's redemption of those under the law. This is, ladies and gentlemen, this is, this is the gospel. He fulfilled the law on our behalf. He became the curse for us. He received God's just judgment for sin on our behalf. Died in our place. He consumed the cup of God's wrath to the dregs. He's raised from the dead now, seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. As a son in his loving Father's house, he is there willingly, lovingly, not begrudgingly, but ever rejoicing before the face of the Father to his infinite and unfathomable glory. This relation the headwater. It's the wellspring of life eternal. This is what you are invited into tonight. This is what you are invited into in the gospel, by faith in Christ, if only you would believe. But it's into this relation, into this holy communion, that we receive adoption as sons through grace, through God's grace, just as in our justification Adoption is not a result of our own merit, merit, excuse me, or worthiness, but solely by the grace of God. It is a divine act of love, a vital expression of God's unmerited favor toward us. He bestows upon us the most intimate of possible relationships here, that of father and his children. As children of God, we have this incredible privilege of calling him Abba, Father. We can approach him with boldness, knowing that. He listens intently to our prayers and he cares for us in our needs and he rejoices with us in our joys. And it's rightly said, adoption brings about relationship changes. First, the relationship with God has changed. Abba, Father, Child of God. As Christ says, I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father. The believer's life is controlled then by the conviction that God is his father, and this is his comfort in all aspects of his life. The second, our relationship with the world has changed. It's a troubled relationship now. Further, it's one that believes we continually strive to put to death because even though we live in the world, we must not be of it. The third, our relationship to the family of God has changed. For the child of God has many brothers and sisters in Christ, and as the believer, united to God and Christ, so he is united to all other people of God. Thus, brothers and sisters, adoption brings with it also sweet communion of saints. And in this communion, we embrace our identity as children of God. Now, identity is not behavior, that's backwards. Behavior flows from identity. Sexuality is a behavior, and its varying expressions carries a moral dimension. Whatever the behavior in Christ, we are fully to embrace our identities as children of God. Regardless of our past mistakes, regardless of our cultural expectations, and in embracing this identity, we find profound implications for our lives. It transforms our self-perception. We are no longer defined by our past mistakes failures, societal labels, or some intersection of these. Your identity is rooted in Christ, alone, and rests in faith on his redeeming work. As heirs of God's grace, we are clothed with his righteousness and filled with the Holy Spirit. It enables us to live into this identity in Christ with full abandon, as lights in the goodness, lights of the goodness of God, bearing the good news of the gospel, the light of the Son in us. To dawn on the sin-darkened world, in this embrace of our Heavenly Father, we find wholeness, healing, restoration, and a renewed sense of purpose. Our adoption frees us from the bondage of sin, shame, guilt, no longer slaves to the past, but through the expectations of the world. The chains of sin that once bound have been shattered by the power of the cross. In Christ, we are new creations, empowered to live as sons and daughters of the King. As John Stott once said, the Christian believes in Jesus Christ and has learned through him to call God Father. He lives and moves in his father's world. He draws his breath in his father's air. His body is sustained by his father's power. He is a prince in his father's kingdom, an heir in his father's estate. Privileges and blessings that come with our adoption are abundant access to his presence, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the assurance of eternal life. We have access to the vast treasures of God's kingdom. All the storehouses of heaven are open to you in Christ. In his spirit we have his wisdom, his love, his guidance, provision, and also along with the word we have the assurance of eternal life, the sureness of a promise from God himself, the knowing that we will one day take possession of the fullness of our inheritance. And beloved, our our, our Father, he delights in this. He delights in lavishing his love upon us. But this is only in Christ, and it is in his name that God invites us to partake of this abundant grace. These privileges, bringing responsibility of joyful service, childlike reverential love to the Father, submission to his will in all providences, obedience, imitation, for the Father, love for the Father's other children. As a child rejoices in pleasing his father, Dr. Joel Beeky once said, so the believer searches the smiles and frowns in the providence of God according to his word to guide all his conduct in life. So I hope this evening, too, have impressed upon you the importance of understanding our identity. The challenges we face and the privileges that we enjoy as heirs of God's grace. And I want to exhort you this evening to hold fast to the truth of your adoption as an heir of that grace. Remember the dangers conforming to worldly principles. Let's look to the glorious reality of our adoption as sons and daughters through Christ and always remember that this is all a grace, this is all a gift, all given through the Son. Never lose sight of the immense privilege and the cost that was paid for us to be called children of God. We are not our own. We were purchased with a price. We are gods. Calvin says, let his wisdom and will therefore rule all our actions. We are gods. Let all the parts of our life accordingly strive toward him as our only lawful goal. So as heirs of God's grace, We are called to live, brothers and sisters, in light of this identity. We are called to walk in obedience, to love God with all our heart, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Our lives should reflect something of the character of our Heavenly Father, There should be a family resemblance, his love, his mercy, his compassion, his justice. Our actions and words should bear witness to the transformative power of the gospel drawing others to experience the love and grace found in Jesus Christ. And I want to leave us with two things. I want to challenge us all to live fully before the grace of God is it work, challenging each of us to live in a manner that reflects our biblical identities as children of God, demonstrating love, grace, obedience in our daily lives. And I also want to remind you to continually enjoy the blessings and privileges that come with this inheritance as heirs of God's grace, this grace and peace in the gospel that is God's will for us. Let us pray. We pray, Heavenly Father, that the truths of Paul's epistle to Galatians would take deep root within our hearts. We ask you would help us to grasp this profound reality that we are your children and that this is all a gift of your grace received by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And Father, we ask that you would guard us from the dangers of legalism and of moralism and of lawlessness. And remind us there's a ditch on either side of the road. Remind us that daily that our righteousness and acceptance before you are solely based on Christ's finished work on the cross. May this message inspire us with vibrant faith, marked by a deep love for you, a sincere desire to live in obedience to your word. Grant us the wisdom to discern Courage to stand firm in the truth of the gospel. In all this, we pray.